Bakerpedia. The simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Lynn Carson with a PhD in grain sciences. Sharing knowledge and helping you grow connections. Listening to the Baked in Science podcast. I'm your host, Lynn Carson, CEO of Bakerpedia, the world's largest online technical baking resource that helps solve all your baking questions. Have a question on enzymes? Go Bakerpedia at b a k e r p e d i a dot com. This episode was brought to you by Delavaux Food Partners. Delavaux Food Product focuses on solving customers' problems, not selling them products. This approach starts with a deep understanding of a customer's problem, desired outcome, and manufacturing environment. These inputs are then used to derive prototypes that are designed to work in that customer's process within their operating conditions and ultimately to address their performance needs. Visit Delavaux. Food.com. That's D E L A V A U F O O D. dot com today to learn more. With me today is Matt Patrick from Delavaux, and he is the head of the R and D team. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Lynn. It's great to be here. Hey, it's great to have you on the on the podcast because I have so many questions for you on enzymes. Great. I posted, yeah, I posted a, um, a LinkedIn uh, question, uh, and I've got so many that came back. Um, so indicating that a lot of people out there are looking for solutions, and they are confused about enzymes. Can okay. you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do and what's your ex- baking experience? Well. Delavo, um, I like to, to think of Delavo as primarily a formulating house. Uh-huh. And we take uh, a variety of materials, highly functional materials available to us um, in the food ingredient industry. And um, we formulate those into solutions to solve specific problems for the bakery industry. And it just so happens that a lot of the key issues facing uh, bakers and developers right now can be solved using a variety of enzymes. And so we are heavily focused on enzyme solutions at the moment because that's what the industry needs. That's great. And what kind of products do you formulate for? Well, we spend most of our time helping customers extend the textural shelf life of their products. Mm-hmm. or the antimicrobial shelf life of their products. And we spend a lot of time cleaning up labels, providing these two functionalities, but with ingredient statements that are much more pleasant to look at mm-hmm. than you see with a lot of products today. Right. A lot of our questions um, coming about enzymes are based on the fact that many people don't understand what enzymes are. If you can summarize it within a paragraph, can you tell our listeners, explain to our listeners what enzymes are? Okay. So I think the first thing that uh, 
uh, folks may not be aware of is that enzymes are simply protein. They're just a type of protein. Um, so just like any other protein, like meat, eggs, well, those kind of proteins, at, right? At a high level, yes. Yeah. It just so happens that uh, enzymes are a type of protein that do very specific tasks. Um, they don't just sit there. They actually do things. Um, and the enzymes that we formulate act on starches and they can act on gluten and have pretty significant effects on how bakery products perform. So I think a good analogy might be um, gluten. Gluten seems to cause a lot of confusion with consumers, but gluten is simply protein. Um, and uh, enzymes are proteins as well. Great. And to my knowledge, uh, a particular enzyme only work on a particular substrate? That's correct. So um, can you elaborate a little bit more about that? So um, a very common type of enzyme used in the bakery industry is something called amylose. Uh -huh. And that enzyme um, really only interacts with carbohydrates or specifically with, with starch. Uh -huh. And what it does, it tends to chop up the starch in different ways. Mm -hmm. And there are many different types of amylases, uh -huh. and they have uh, different functionalities. Um, they can affect the starch in different way. Um, they have different sensitivities. Some of them uh, can, can take no heat at all. Some can take a little bit of heat. Some can actually take a lot of heat, in some, and in some cases survive the baking process. So a big part of working with an amylase to modify starch is knowing which amylase to work with for a given situation, either for a given product or a given process or for a given outcome that you want with your baked good. Right, so in starch, the main molecules are amylose and amylopectin, right? Or is right. there? Okay, and so it works on those things? It does, it works okay. on both of them. But it won't work on like a cellulose or a pentosan then? Not, not necessarily. And um, maybe a good way to think uh, what a lot of enzymes do is they chop up the starch molecule in different places. Mm -hmm. And an amylose can nibble at the ends of a starch molecule and leave little pieces floating around. Right. And those little pieces can get stuck within the branches of the larger starch molecules and it prevents retrogradation of starch. It prevents staling. Right. So the chopping process, it really just generates some small fragments that help prevent the starch from crystallizing and uh, the baked good from becoming overly firm as it ages. So let's talk about that a little bit more and understand that um, this only happens at a certain time and temperature. Say, for example, during the baking process, can you elaborate a little bit more about where this happens, this chopping up of the large, okay. large so, starch block? So a big part of, of designing an enzyme system for a customer is identifying uh, where it's best for this material to act. Mm -hmm. But I think it, uh, it's safe to say that in most cases, it's acting 
during the preparation of the dough and perhaps during um, the proofing of the dough. Mm -hmm. That's where you'll be chopping up the little pieces of starch. But it doesn't actually act until after the, the baked good comes out of the oven. And over time, the larger starch molecules might want to crystallize or retrograde. But those little pieces of starch that you created back in the mixing process are still there, ready to prevent that crystallization. Correct. So the act of, action of the enzyme happens during the production of the dough, mm -hmm. but the functionality happens after it's been baked. Okay. So a lot of a lot of the questions also come from, hey, you know, how do we know if everything happened in the bowl and the proofing process and is deactivated. I don't want activated enzymes in my product after that. So that was one of the, the, the challenges in <clears throat> the early release of enzymes decades ago. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a real good understanding of how to use them and when to use them. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of, uh, uh, bad instances. Bakers had a lot of bad experiences either by using the wrong type of enzyme or using too much. Um, for an extreme example, if you were to put way too much uh, amylase into your dough, that amylase would start chopping up starch every which way, and you could end up with a dough that is almost liquid wow. in nature. So that's an extreme example of overusing. An enzyme. Uh -huh. Today, most most of the enzyme uh, amy amylases that are available are intended to be deactivated during baking. Uh -huh. There are some that might survive the baking process, but we would only use those if there was some specific need for doing that. Okay. Um, in ninety nine percent of instances, the enzyme systems are designed to uh, be deactivated during the baking process. So around what temperature would that be? Um, well, it varies depending on uh, the type of enzyme. Some of them are probably going to become inactivated uh, just below the boiling temperature of water, just below 200 degrees. Mm -hmm. Some of the more robust enzymes might be uh, a bit above that. Mm -hmm. uh, but in general, you know, as I mentioned before, enzymes are proteins. Mm -hmm. and most proteins denature somewhere around the boiling point of water. Right. So about 160. Yes. Up, say 160 up to say 240. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, baking temperatures are typically much, much higher than that. Right. So uh, most bakers would feel confident that, well, you know, most of our internal temperatures go above 200 degrees Fahrenheit for probably about, you know, five to 10 minutes. So a lot of us would be confident that enzymes would be denatured at that point, right? Yes. I mean, okay. the reality is enzymes are fairly delicate in nature. And the, the typical heating process of a, of a bakery oven is, is absolutely going to denature and deactivate those enzymes. Okay. So I have another question about um, what enzyme a baker can use to boost volume. Okay. Um, 
So with many, many aspects of baking, there's a lot of interplay between the various things that are going on. And that's true also with how enzymes interact with baked goods. So if I were to give you an example, there's a couple of ways you could uh, uh, affect volume. One of the enzymes that we work with are there a class of enzymes called proteases or proteinases. And instead of chopping up carbohydrates or chopping up starches, like we discussed when we were talking about amylases, mm -hmm. these enzymes chop up protein. They oh. chop up gluten. And so right. they can weaken the gluten network. So if you have just the right amount of enzyme, maybe you can uh, reduce the tightness of the dough and allow it to rise a bit more. So that's, that's one approach. Another approach would be to use an enzyme that produces carbohydrate fragments that the yeast can use as food and make the yeast more productive in generating more gas, and then you have more pressure to increase volume. So I guess the point I want to make is that there's a lot multiple interactions going on and we try and keep all of that in mind when we're designing an enzyme system. Mm -hmm. Rarely do we design an enzyme system with only one type of enzyme or one enzyme. Okay. We're generally trying to affect multiple functions simultaneously and it's very dependent on the specific application, what kind of product, baked product we're talking about, it depends on the process that the customer is using. So I would say uh, rarely have we had success working with just one enzyme and one functionality. But I give these two examples as a way to describe how we think about formulating a solution. Great. That brings me to a discussion I had in my last um, podcast on fermentation. Yes. The question came through that says, hey, you know, do you have anything to help my low sugar uh, dough? Because, you know, you can't add more yeast. Ad adding more yeast is not the solution. So the solution right. that Aaron Clinton uh, uh, provided was to add an enzyme to clip, clip the carbohydrates to give the yeast more food. So yes. would you be able to design a system like that to help low sugar doughs? Yes. Okay. Yes. We could right. do that. For the okay. solution to be completely successful, we might have to turn more knobs than just providing carbohydrate fragments for the yeast. We might have to play around with some other functionalities as well for it to be completely successful. But yes, that, that logic you presented is exactly right. That's yeah. exactly the kind of thing that you could use an enzyme to help you out of a, an issue that you have. Great. All right, we're taking a break to thank Delavaux Food Partners for sponsoring this episode. The addition of high levels of calcium to bread products isn't as easy as it may appear. Great care needs to be taken to ensure that the eating qualities of the bread remain the same with a large amount of calcium added to it. How do you do that? 
Well, Delavaux's excellent calcium fortification technology delivers that high load of calcium without impact to the eating experience. Contact Rick Diamond today at 855-671-3663 to learn how you can do this. One more thing, listeners. Please like or subscribe to this podcast and leave any comments below so as to help me make this podcast series better for you. Welcome back. And I do have more questions for you, Matt. Are you ready for my yep, next round? All right. Yep, sounds great. I have a question on enzymes that can relax Joe. Do you have a lot of requests for that? Uh, we, we do. Um, it's very common for industrial bakers to experience challenges with variability in their, in their uh, flour supply. Mm-hmm. And they might have a formulation and a process um, tuned in such a way that, let's say we're making a, a sub roll, that the, uh, the pans for the sub roll are perfectly filled. Uh-huh. The are perfectly shaped and the entire pan uh, is filled. And then a new, uh, a new shipment of flour comes in, and all of a sudden, the pans aren't full anymore, and uh, the dough is too stiff. That's true. So we, um, we are able to provide formulated tools to suppliers to allow them to modulate uh, that extensibility to compensate for variation in their incoming flour. Sometimes we'll do that for a customer and it only has to be done once and they're happy with the performance of their dough. In other cases, we have to show uh, a baker how to use this particular tool and they adjust the use level as the nature of their flour changes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a very, it's a very common problem. Um, and we have off the shelf products that, uh, customers can try to see if it solves their their problem, but we also are happy to formulate a, a specific solution for them to do exactly that. So this specific uh, solution, you don't use it at every production. It would be on productions that seems like the dough is more bucky, like the dough it needs think, a little more relaxation. Maybe every combination you can think of is possible. In oh. some cases, it might be used all the time as a standard part of the dough. Okay. Sometimes it's used as part of the, of the dough every time, but the level is modulated up and yeah. down, depending on the nature of the, of the dough. And then I suppose there are instances where the customer is okay without it sometimes, but then, uh, then needs it at other times. That's but I would say the most common the most common solution is for it to be incorporated into the product uh, as a standard part of the formula mm-hmm. and uh, the line staff then uh, uh, modulate it up or down as they need to. Okay, sounds great. Uh, you know how we are currently in the process of cleaning out our systems and getting rid of datum, getting rid right. of SSL, CSL. Right. What solutions do we can we look forward to in terms of replacing emulsifiers? Okay, so um, I've I've presented at a few trade shows 
over the past uh, two or three years. And from the questions that the audience was asking and from conversations I've had with uh, bakers after the presentations, uh, it became clear to me that many in the industry don't realize that uh, those ingredients you just mentioned can actually be replaced with enzymes. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the exact enzyme system, again, depends on the product and the process and what the, uh, the customer wants the finished product to look like. But there are ways to eliminate those uh, materials you just spoke of individually yeah. or completely through the adept development of an enzyme system. Uh -huh. I would say there's only I would say there's only one area that is still problematic, and we're busy working on on ways to solve that problem, and that's removing emulsifiers from emulsified cake systems. Um, okay. And the reason is that in cake systems, you are truly using the emulsifier to, in fact, emulsify right. oil, oil in air. But right. in most baked goods, they're called emulsifiers, but they're not actually emulsifying in the <laughs> traditional sense. What they're doing is uh, interacting with the gluten, um, interact, interacting with the starches in ways that affect the behavior of the dough and the finished product. So um, all of the materials you just mentioned can be eliminated with the use of enzymes. Right. So um, in, in the aspect of dough, um, just to be a little more transparent with our listeners, sure. um, suppliers usually use enzymes like, um, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, lip, lipophosphatase? Uh, phospholipases. Phospholipases. So, there you go. Yeah, there, there <laughs> I knew I couldn't get that right, but can, can you uh, elaborate a little bit more about what that does? Okay, so in in, a, in the case of a phospholipase, frequently what you're doing is um, using the cutting power of the enzyme to um, cleave off part of a phospholipid. Mm -hmm. And that cleaved off part can then provide emulsifying properties. Right. So you could say in a way what it's doing is creating, creating an emulsifier in the baked good as opposed to you adding an emulsifier. I think that's a very intelligent yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's yeah, amazing. It's amazing that we can actually make the system uh, act like an emulsifier itself, you know, just right. by introducing enzymes. Exactly. Um, I think, you know, and I think we need to cut through the, um, the fear factor of using enzymes uh, because I think that's a lot on uh, the baker's mind. Um, they're right. fearful of using enzymes because they don't know what enzymes do and they don't yeah. know, you know, um, the origin of enzymes. Right. Can we go a little bit more into the origin of enzymes? Are they GMO? Where do they come from? Well, um, you know, if you go back far enough in time, the primary source of enzymes in baked goods uh, was malt. Correct. And if if because they sit out in the field for a while before they harvest and they sprout, and the malt is exactly part of the so sprouting so process. 
So when you bolt a grain like barley, um, what you're doing is causing the, the, the barley to sprout just a little bit. Mm-hmm. During that sprouting process, um, all kinds of enzymes are generated to, uh, to help chop up the starch into sugar so that the plant can grow. Um, so malt from malted barley is just full of enzymes. Uh-huh. That, that was, I would say that was the first use of enzymes in bakery, and that's been going on for a century. Um, many bakers use malted, uh, malted flour for the diastatic property, malt breaks. So many bakers are using enzymes. They just might not realize they're using enzymes. Um, but that, uh, that is a low level of power associated right. with the, the enzymes in malt. They're, they're, the level of the enzymes is, is relatively low. Um, so uh, the industry now adds purified enzymes bit more control and a bit more power uh, than you would get from uh, just using malt. And those enzymes uh, come from very similar, uh, they come from fermentation processes uh-huh. in which um, that may have lost you. Are you still there? Yes. Yes, okay. I'm here. Um, so uh, enzyme producers use fermentation technology to generate enzymes at much higher levels and more economic levels. And it's those enzymes that are uh, utilized by the industry right now. In some cases, um, those, those enzymes may come from uh, that is in, in no way uh, by modern and then there are others. Actually, you are breaking off. Um, oh. is, is there something around there that's cutting the internet connection? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Okay, because that's why I turned on my video. So, um, uh, okay. Yeah, um, so I'm going to have you continue from where we left off. <laughs> Sorry okay. about that. You want me to back up and start somewhere else? So I want you to back up to, um, uh, where was, what, what was a good like point? Malt? Do we yeah, need let, to repeat, repeat yeah, the let's, let's talk about malt, right? Okay. okay. I'm going to stop my video. Okay. Let's talk about malt. Okay. Um, Bakers have actually been using enzymes for centuries, I suppose. Um, But they've been uh, receiving those enzymes and some of their functionality through the use of malt and malted barley. So many bakers are using malted flour right now. And malted flour provides its benefit through the... uh, the diastatic properties of the enzymes that are there that are contained within the malt. Uh-huh. And um, now that we have gone to higher scale production of enzymes, what can we tell the bakers 
um, to ease their minds on how these enzymes are being produced. I think a lot of them have questions on whether these enzymes are GMO. Okay, so um, the, the subject of GMO, and in particular, how a given uh, company or a given baker or a given supplier defines GMO is a very complex one. And in my experience, that discussion is slightly different with uh, every customer. So mm-hmm. I think my, my first piece of advice would be for uh, a baker to broach that subject with their enzyme supplier and talk about their concerns and what their specific needs are right and have that discussion on a case by case basis because there are um, a wide variety of enzymes that fall into different regulatory buckets relative to gmo okay um, i'll try try and explain um, it in one extreme it could be that an enzyme has been created via modern biotechnology that is not exactly like uh, the natural version, but it's highly effective and it's highly cost, uh, cost effective. Uh-huh. That might be one extreme. Okay. And then there are some enzymes that are exactly like the natural version but they've been produced through, but they've been produced in a fermentation vessel um, using some type of bacteria in order to make huge quantities of those enzymes. Mm-hmm. And there's an example where, oh, it might be, not be quite as functional or it might not be quite as cost effective, but it's um, perhaps more acceptable, a more acceptable definition of GMO uh, for a baker to use. So, so my, um, I guess my, my, my key message here is the subject is complex and it's best dealt with on a case-by-case basis through a discussion between the baker, the customer, um, and the enzyme supplier. If a baker uh, is baking for a GMO certified free label, would you have solutions for that? Yes, we do. Okay. Uh, it's important to know that constraint from the very beginning because the toolbox, a toolbox does exist, an enzyme toolbox does exist to do that, but it's much narrower toolbox than uh, if that requirement wasn't there. That's true. And, uh, we want to make, when we're developing a, an enzyme system for a customer, we want to make sure we know about that from the beginning so that we don't inadvertently spend a lot of time designing a solution that, uh, that the customer ultimately can't or doesn't want to use. Um, That's true. It means that in some instances, we might not be able to come up with a solution mm-hmm. uh, simply because the toolbox is smaller, yep. or it might mean that it's a bit more expensive because the toolbox uh, materials are a bit more ex- expensive. Yeah. But, but in general, yes, there are solutions available that would, would meet that requirement. It's, that's it's awesome. important that, that that's on the table from the very beginning. Yeah, that's awesome because I, I really want to let our listeners know that enzymes are safe to consume. 
they are destroyed by the baking process. And I think a lot of the fear from using enzymes are coming from the uh, inability to approach this conversation with the suppliers. And I'm really glad that you guys are open to such discussions. Um, yeah, I, I, think, think, I think the only way to manage it is, is through a really transparent discussion. Right, right. About, about how the development process uh, is going to happen and, and which materials we're actually going to pull from. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we try and interact with customers in as transparent a manner as possible so that everyone, everyone learns through the engagement. That's great. Hey, I got one more question for you. Sure. You mentioned something about antimicrobial just now. That, yeah. that caught my attention. And uh, do you have an enzyme solution for antimicrobial usage? Well, it's not an enzyme solution. Uh, the, the most common material used in the bakery industry for managing mold growth is uh, calcium propionate. Correct. And if you do some research, you one discovers that the typical process for making calcium propionate uh, is um, uh, based on materials not necessarily coming from from uh, all how do I say it um, ideal ideal sources. It's a pretty uh, heavy heavy chemical industry uh, type of product. Correct. There are now solutions available uh, in which we ferment. Um, wheat starch, Correct. or wheat, or dextrose. Or any kind of starch-based molecule. Any, any type of starch-based uh, raw material source. Uh -huh. And through that fermentation, we end up with a product that is relatively high in propionic acid. Mm -hmm. But that propionic mass acid has been produced through a natural fermentation process. Mm -hmm. And this material is very effective at managing uh, mold growth. Oh, and, wow. Okay. And it's, uh, it's, it's very nice on an ingredient statement, and it's, it's usually uh, fermented followed by the, the source material. So fermented wheat, fermented wheat starch, fermented dextrose, something like so that. So you provide the enzyme solution to produce the propionic acid? No, in this particular case, enzymes aren't, aren't involved at all. Oh, okay. It's just fermentation. Right. Exactly. Bacteria. And, you know, to be clear, um, Delavo's goal is to solve problems for bakers. Mm -hmm. And the reason we're working with enzymes primarily is because they're providing the solutions that bakers need. Right. But if, in the, you know, as in this example, we need to work with a material that's not an enzyme, well, mm -hmm. that's fine. We're happy to do that. Um, and clearly, as you start extending the textural shelf life of a product, sometimes microbial shelf life can rear its head. Yes. And so we wanted to make sure that we have a solution to solve both problems simultaneously if we need to. Right. So if you ever do find a all-natural antimicrobial solution, please let me know because I'm writing this article for Clean Label Cakes right now. And I am, I am just not finding any solutions that are um, applicable at the uh, bakery level. So, um, so if you, well, if you do you know, have it any, comes back to, it comes back to um, 
how you define all natural, um, and, and it, you know, it comes back to how a customer defines natural. So I, I think a lot of my customers are saying, well, whatever Trader Joe's and Whole Foods doesn't right. want on the label, like potassium sorbet, right? Right. So- <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, fair enough. So, so I so, guess so. Those solutions I'm looking for. <laughs> okay, well, certainly calcium propionate is used pervasively through the bakery industry. Right. And these fermented solutions are very effective ways of getting that particular antimicrobial off of one's label. Right. Yeah. So um, that's great for dose, but I'm still looking for for cakes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we still have a little more work to do, don't we? Yes, you do. <laughs> so give me the heads up, you know, when, when, you, when you find a solution. I'll do that. All right. So thank you for joining me today, Matt. And oh, it's it was, been great. Really enjoyed yeah, it. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. And thank you for letting me pick your brains on enzymes. I really appreciate it. I'll be here the next time you're ready to chat some more. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, a big thank you to Delavo Food Partners for bringing this episode on enzymes to you. As Matt has suggested, different enzymes have different functions, and a combination of these are required for your process. Rely on the experts at Delavo to deliver a clean enzyme solution for your bread, tortilla, flatbread, organic, gluten-free, and donuts. Go to Delavo Food Partners today at D-E-L-A-V-A-U-F-O-O-D dot com or contact Rick Diamond today at 855-671-3663. One last thing, listeners. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for your wonderful feedback. Please subscribe, like, and comment on this podcast so that we can make it better for you. Well, until the next episode, use nature to bake it right. All right? Bye.